This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today I'm joined by Dr. Adrian Owen, a cognitive neuroscientist who discovered how to communicate with patients in vegetative and coma states. Now, these are patients who, usually after some kind of accident, are left unable to move, talk or feed themselves. And in effect, Adrian's work gave these patients a way to tell the world that they were there, conscious and awake. And better still, it gave those caring for them a means to improve their care. Adrian's career is well documented in his book, Into the Grey Zone. And today he joins us to talk about his groundbreaking work, how it evolved over time, and how the advent of brain-machine interfaces might improve the lives of patients in comas and vegetative states. So commonly, we talk about comas, people know about comas and vegetative states, um, but there are actually different types of patients that you, you work with, aren't there? That's right, yes. I mean, coma is what people typically see in Hollywood movies. It's where a patient is neither awake nor aware. So they have eyes closed. They typically don't move. They lie uh, in a hospital bed. And, you know, they're typically like that in the first few days or weeks after a very serious brain injury. Vegetative state is something actually that's quite different because these patients open their eyes and they'll actually you know, look around the room. They don't look at anything in particular. They have no sort of purposeful uh, 
visual responses, but they, 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 in some senses, they're, they're animated. Uh, that's not to say they get up and walk away or anything, but they, they do open their eyes and, and sort of look around the room and they'll, they'll go to sleep. They have normal or, or semi-normal sleeping and waking cycles. Um, you know, they do automatic things like yawn and, and cough. So uh, that, that's really the main difference is the, is the, um, is, is sort of how animated they are. And is that is that where your work has mostly focused with with patients in vegetative states, or is it? Yes, until until a couple of years ago, everything I've been doing for the last twenty years or so has been either in patients who are in a vegetative state or in a very similar condition known as the minimally conscious state, and that's a situation where patients can often appear to be vegetative, but they can at least respond to you in some way albeit um, a little bit unreliably. So typically they might be able to sort of move their finger if you ask them. Uh, not not frequently enough to be able to communicate or anything, but there's some indication that they are aware. Those are called minimally conscious patients. And those in the vegetative state are the patients that, that I've focused most of my work on. I think, again, just dipping back into the, I suppose, the, the pop culture uh, view of this, it's often likened to like a sleep or, or going under uh, general anesthesia. Is that is that true or is that a bit of a, a misconception? It's actually a complete misconception. I mean, you know, one of the things that happens to almost every student or trainee that comes to work with me is, is you know, they'll go into the ICU to start examining a, you know, a coma or a vegetative state patient. And they typically come away really quite shocked um, because they, they're nothing like uh, they appear in the movies. I mean, these people have typically had very serious injuries. To get yourself into a coma, um, you may have had a you know a very severe blow over the head. Uh, you may have had a you know cardiac arrest or a stroke, or and, and all of these things you know tend to leave people in a in a pretty poor condition they're not the sort of peaceful sleeping beauties that we see in the hollywood movies that's really in fact that's something that i've never really seen in in all the years i've been doing this i wanted to touch on this because it's something i remember distinctly from your book the gray zone which i i really greatly uh, enjoyed a few years back um how how did you come into this field in the first place what what brought you to start sort of investigating consciousness uh in these patients well, my, my background is in is in psychology and in, in neuroimaging. Uh, I am what we now refer to as a cognitive neuroscientist, which is means that I use tools like you know MRI and PET scans to try and understand how the brain works. I'd been doing that for about uh, twenty years um, when working at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Uh, one of my colleagues brought a patient to my attention. He said, you know, there's a, a patient in a vegetative state on the ICU. Perhaps you should scan her. And the reason he said this is because, you know, that that was my background. I was the sort of local brain scanning guy. I uh, was used to, at that point, used to putting healthy people into the scanner to see what their brains did when we asked them to, to do things uh, or to think about things. But this, was, this really intrigued me, the idea that we could take a vegetative patient. And, and really it was... The question we were asking was very open-ended. We were just wondering, well, is there anything going on? Will, will we see anything in there? I mean, I think really we expected to see nothing. 
But um, the patient who, that we scanned on that day, we, we put her into, into a PET scanner and we asked, uh, oh, in fact, we showed her pictures of her friends and family. And again, that was based on my background and work that I'd been doing. At that point, we knew quite a lot about which parts of the brain are involved in perceiving and recognizing familiar faces. So by showing this patient familiar faces, friends and family, we reasoned that, well, if, if we sh- if there's anything going on, we'll see activity in those areas of the brain that we know are involved in in that sort of processing. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. Um, I think it was an enormous surprise for all of us. I think, we, as I said, we really expected probably to see nothing. But her, her brain lit up really like a, a healthy participant's brain would light up if, if we'd done the same thing to them in the scan. And that was really the, the start of the of the whole journey. You went and on then to produce, I guess, what's quite quite now quite a famous piece of work, at least in, in scientific circles, where you were able to actually communicate with a patient in a vegetative state, which had never been done before and had effectively saved their life. You know, it proved that they were conscious to some degree so for people who might not be familiar with that could you just explain the kind of how you went from that initial study to the follow-up and and the results that you got of course I mean I should say you know it was almost 10 years work actually to do that and the the reason is because there are many things that the brain does completely automatically I mean face recognition you know, is an example of that. When you see somebody that you know in the in the street, you don't decide to recognise your face. Their face, uh, your brain just automatically does it. And you know, anybody listening to this this podcast, assuming that they can speak English, that they can't decide not to understand me. You know, speech comprehension, as as we we call it, is is not something that is 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 something that you consciously decide to do. And by the time we, uh, you know, we got to 2006, which, uh, you know, as you've said, was sort of a, a breakthrough study, we came to realize that many of the things that we were seeing happening in the brains of supposedly vegetative patients could just be sort of automatic responses, you know, brain reflexes, if you like, um, you know, speech comprehension is, is one example of that, face recognition is another. And we realized that we had to come up with another way of doing things that would actually show us that the person was conscious. It wasn't just that their brain was automatically responding. And the way we reasoned this through was we thought, well, how do you do this, you know, at the bedside? And everybody listening to this will have seen a, a you know a TV show where a doctor grabs a, a comatose patient's hand and says, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. Well, if the if the patient squeezes the doctor's hand, the doctor knows that the patient is conscious. In fact, they know a lot more than that. They know that the patient can understand language and they can turn that instruction into a, a you know a physical action. Now we know that vegetative patients can't respond in that way. In fact, by definition, they can't make physical responses. So we thought, well, could they make a brain response? If we put a patient into the scanner and said, well, imagine doing this or imagine doing that, as long as we knew what the brain should do, what the healthy brain should do, if the person did it, if they produced that brain response, we would know that they were conscious for the same reason as when you when you feel that hand squeeze, you know the patient's conscious. So we chose to ask the first patient in 2006 that we, we achieved this with, we asked her to imagine she was playing a game of tennis. And that's not because there's a tennis playing area of the brain or anything. It's just because we wanted to find an easy way to get her to vigorously wave her arms or imagine waving her arms around in the air. And we know that that will activate a part of the brain known as the premotor cortex. Uh, it's just a part of the brain that's involved in sort of setting up complex 
sequences of, of movements in your body. And when somebody, when a healthy person lies in the scanner and thinks that they're, or imagines playing tennis, you get this lovely activity in the in this one region of the brain. And in 2006, we we had a patient who'd supposedly been vegetated for several weeks. We said, imagine playing tennis, and boom, that part of the brain just lit up. You know, we waited 30 seconds, and we said, okay, now stop imagining playing tennis, an activity in that area. The brain stopped lighting up. We thought, well, we'll, we'll try this again. Hang on. You know, imagine playing tennis. Boom, the brain lit up. You know, the way I tried to describe this is it, it's really exactly as if we'd asked her to squeeze a hand and then stop squeezing the hand and squeeze the hand several times. But we just said, you know, act, if you're conscious, if you can hear us, activate this part of your brain now. And that and that's exactly what happened. And that's how we really made the the, the the big leap, I think, from simply showing that some of these patients' brains had some residual function, they could still respond, perhaps reflexively, to actually showing that many of these patients are conscious, they are aware, they know who they are, where they are, and the predicament that they're in. There's, a, there's an absolute ton of questions that follow up from that. And I feel like it's worth saying, if you do want to find out more about all of this than it that it is in your book, which documents this whole process very well. But for the listeners, what 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 were the consequences of that moment, just in terms of patient care? Uh, because you've, you'd obviously had a person in a vegetative state, and if a patient is in that state, there are lots of questions being asked about how they should be treated and whether their life should be prolonged, etc. So what, what happened after that, that um, eureka moment, I guess? For me, the, the main consequence of, of that one study uh, w- was immediately people stopped treating these patients as though they weren't aware. And, and I mean, as I say in the book, I, it's, it's, it's human nature, and I, I don't blame anybody for this, but very often these patients are, are, are neglected, not in the sense that they don't receive care, but you know, people don't talk to them, they don't try and interact with them. And you know, it's, it's human nature. If somebody gives you nothing back, month in month out you know very often you, you just sort of give up and you know in that sense they're sort of socially neglected i think and that really seemed to change overnight i mean it certainly happened for the patients i was i was seeing at the time and and many of my clinical colleagues since then when they've been sort of reflecting on the the you know the the discovery and what impacts it's ha- it, it had that you know they'll often say things like well no you know nobody ever assumes that one of these patients is unconscious anymore you know I, I don't know that the impact has been that wide but but I, I think in, you know anybody who's familiar with the study and the fact that you know we were able to show that a, a patient who completely appeared to be vegetative clinically was in fact completely aware I think anybody and the, you know many many people are now aware of that finding I think. Those people change very much change their behaviour, you know, around the patient. You're obviously careful of the sorts of conversations you're having, actually interact with the patient and try to the extent that it's possible to, to involve them in the conversation. Yeah, they can't contribute, but you can still address them as as human beings. So, you know, I think in many ways that's that's the biggest impact for the for the patients themselves. You know, that wasn't the sort of be all and end all as well. It, it, that ability to communicate then led to treatment avenues I suppose I don't know if that's the right way of phrasing it but you did have a number of patients who recovered after that sort of first contact was the act of sort of acknowledging their presence as you said sort of touched on before did it did it seem to give them hope or maybe hope's a bit of a 
emotional word, but give them something to to sort of um, focus on? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's one I've pondered many times since. I mean, it's it's I think it's quite interesting that over the course of 20, 25 years that I've been working with these patients, you know, very, very few of them actually go on to make a significant recovery. But actually, I can think of three examples, you know, patients who have done very well, and they were all really at the center of, um, you know, a big sort of media storm after, you know, one of our studies came out in the academic press. And you know, what happens in these situations, one obviously has to be very careful because you, you can't get, you know, consent from the, the patient. But it's often inevitable that, you know, people get very excited. Uh, you know, there are documentaries made about this. There have been books written, fictional books. Um, you know, we've had stories on the X-Files and all, all, uh, Grey's Anatomy. All sorts of programs have been made about these patients now based on on that discovery. And, you know, what happens is they get an, an awful lot more input than they used to you know families start to talk to them again nursing staff start to you know just to chat to them once they realize that they're actually there and they're you know they're they're inside and of course we get very involved I mean one of the patients that we saw early on in this process we scanned I think 17 times and so you know he was seeing me and my staff several times a week for many months Um, and of course that was a lot a lot more interaction than he never had before and it's hard to escape, and this is completely anecdotal. I have, really don't have any scientific evidence to back this up, but it, it's hard to escape the idea, I think, that you know perhaps all this positive input that's going into them, all this encouragement and, and, and socialization is perhaps contributing in some way to, to, them, to them improving. As I say, we, we, we don't have enough data to, to show that that is the case, but it, I find it remarkable that you know, the three big stories we've had over the years, all three of those patients actually went on to do quite well. And to add a little context here, what, what was the sort of, because you did, you sort of travelled quite a lot around the country finding patients in vegetative states. What was, uh, I suppose, the, the success rate, the, the rate at which you were able to communicate with patients? Um, how, so how, how I, I should probably just describe a little bit about what, what we mean or what you mean when you say communication. Um, I mean, after basically getting somebody to imagine playing tennis to show that they're they're conscious we we used a, a variation on that t- technique to actually get people to some of these patients to answer yes or no questions and i'll you know i i won't overcomplicate it but you know for example if you were in the scanner we would say things like you know okay um i'm going to ask you a question if the answer is yes imagine playing tennis and we would look for that signal in the premotor cortex and in that way we managed to communicate with quite a few patients getting uh, actually, yes and no responses to a, a lot of questions, both questions um, that, that we could use to verify that they really were communicating with us. That was generally facts about their lives. You know, is, is your father's name this or is your father's name that? Uh, but also uh, some sort of clinically relevant questions like, you know, are you in any pain? Is there anything we can do to make you more comfortable? You know, these sorts of things. So that's sort of, sort of how we went on to communicate. And what, and what we found is in our sample of patients, and I think in, in 2010, we published a paper with, I think, 54 patients, and 20% of them were not as they appeared to be at all. 20% of these patients could respond. Um, and although we didn't actually communicate with all of them, it's reasonable, I think, to assume that they, they could communicate. I mean, 10, what is it, 10, 11 years on, 
more than a thousand patients have been tested using these techniques now, not not just in you know my centre here in Canada, but in, in many places in the world that have adopted this technique to try and look for signs of consciousness and communicate with these patients. So more than a thousand patients. And again, the overall number is, is that about 20% of them are able to respond and communicate despite being completely physically non-responsive. So there's an important message there. I mean, really, it's that not all vegetative patients are conscious. You know, we're, we're talking about a minority, 20% of them. But also bear in mind, there are hundreds of thousands of these patients around the world, and they'll survive often for, for decades. So we're talking about many, many people, 20% of a very, very large number. Uh, this is a lot of people that have been treated one way or assumed to be one thing sometimes for one or two decades when in fact it turns out there's something else entirely and that volume of people affected i suppose brings um brings me quite nicely to the next question which is so since then we've also been doing lots of different research but one thing we spoke about in the past was um trying to find ways to make this work um, make this body of work something that can actually improve patients' lives. So, so I, yeah, I'm just curious to know what, what you've been doing since then to kind of get this into hospitals and get it get an intervention at the po- point where it most matters. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, about three or four years ago, I realised that although, you know, we could do these fantastic things like discover that people are conscious and, you know, communicate with them, and I, I've written that whole story in, in the book, as you've, you've kind of mentioned, it wasn't clear what we can do for these patients beyond asking them questions like, you know, are you warm, are you cold, are you in pain, which is, I, I think, contributes meaningfully to their quality of life, but of course it doesn't doesn't change their lives in the sense that it doesn't bring them out of their vegetative state. And this is where the, you know, the work with coma comes in. The problem with the vegetative state is um, these patients aren't typically on sort of so-called life support systems. In some senses, they can often be quite healthy, despite the fact that they're vegetative. They're not sort of, their heart pumps normally, they breathe unassisted. Obviously, you, you have to feed them and provide them with hydration because they can't they can't do that themselves but they can survive for for many decades uh, you know like this and because of that it's it's very complicated if a decision is made to allow them to die or you know to to you know it's if it's decided that they don't have sufficient quality of life or there is reason to let them die in most civilized countries it involves a court case and a prolonged amount of sort of decision making and the decision sometimes is that they should be allowed to die and in which case nutrition and, and hydration are, are, are withdrawn but it's, it's sort of very complicated the other si- sort of side of this coin is, is coma in the first few days after a serious brain injury when those patients are in the icu so say you've had a patient that's gone through the windscreen of a car they're totally unconscious terrible brain injury they're in the icu then in the first few days a decision will be made about the likelihood of them recovering are they going to recover are they going to have a meaningful recovery or are they going to be like this for the rest of their lives or or turn into a a vegetative patient and there there is what one might refer to as a a window of opportunity Um, the clinical staff uh, the family together make a decision about whether to to use the colloquialism pull the plug i mean these patients typically are on life support and you you literally 
pull the plug and they'll die within a, you know, a, a few minutes. That happens to many, many patients around the world. Uh, if you go, if you end up in the ICU with a very serious brain injury, there's a very high chance that you're going to die, but you won't die of natural causes. You'll die because a decision is made that you're going to have no meaningful life. I realized about three years ago, we could take all of this work that we'd sort of done in the, in the long-term vegetative patients and actually take it into the ICU. What about if we could actually find patients that had a better chance of recovery than others? What about if we could overturn the, the, the way decisions are made about whether people in the ICU should be given a chance uh, or not? Now, I don't have a strong opinion about this. I'm not coming from a position where I think everybody should be kept alive because obviously there are emotional and economic reasons why these decisions you know, are made when they're made. But if we can get better at predicting who would have had a good recovery, then I think we're we're in a much better, a much stronger position. So all the work that I've been doing for the last two or three years has been in these sort of comatose patients. We we take patients in the typically about uh, five to 10 days after an injury. We do the same thing. We put them in the scanner or put electrodes on their head to look for signs of residual activity. We try to communicate with them um, and try to better understand both exactly what their condition is as far as the extent of their brain damage, but also whether or not, all other things being equal, they are likely to survive uh, and what that survival might look like. And we're making huge, huge progress in that respect. I mean, it's worked actually much better than I I could have ever believed it would work. We really are uh, getting to the point where we can improve our ability to predict the good good outcomes from from the bad outcomes. And so when, when we started talking about this and, and sort of when you started this research, you were, we were talking about fMRI scanners, which are these absolute hulking great machines that you put patients in and you can't wheel them around. Although I think they, they used to be a, a psychologist who had one in a trailer once in America. But um, that, that's by the by. But you, you've managed to shrink the technology and the technique, I suppose, down to things like EEG uh, scanners which are kind of available in most sort of good hospitals aren't they what are the other so there's the tech side that you shrunk and that that'd be interesting to hear about but also what what are the other barriers um to this sort of because when you hear about it you think yeah that should be clearly that should be in most hospitals and so it leaves me wondering what what is blocking it in a sense well i think the thing that's really blocking it is is inertia to be honest i mean you know some of these discoveries we made uh you know getting on for 15 or 16 years ago now and i you know i for one think that any patient uh who is able and there there are some patients who can't go into an mri scanner because if you have parts of metal parts in your body for example you you Mm -hmm. can't do it but for any patient who's able who's had a serious brain injury for whom the the, the the prognosis or what's going to happen to them is uncertain. I, I I think they all deserve to to get into an MRI scanner. And but you know for that to go from being a research tool to being widely used in clinical practice does require that the various regulatory bodies that decide what's what's an appropriate treatment and what isn't uh, make that decision. And if they made the decision, yes every patient deserves an fMRI scan, we would be in a very sort of different place today. But, you know, there are, there are economic reasons. There are, some, there are some practical considerations. I mean, most of the discoveries that we made were, were made on um, not the sort of MRI scanner that is in every hospital. It's typically, um, I mean, it's, it's a, 
a sort of a, a Rolls Royce of an MRI, if you like, um, which just basically means it's, it's a bit more powerful than the most hospital scanners. But as you, we, you know, we tried to mitigate this whole issue by showing you can you can do much the same thing on you know an old hospital scanner. We're we're, we're fortunate or, or unfortunate, uh, however you want to think about it. Here in in London, Ontario, where I'm sitting right now, we have the oldest MRI scanner in North America, in our hospital. It is going to be replaced soon, but right now it's 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 about twenty or so years old. Uh, I, I mean, it's 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 not the it's, it's the oldest working scanner. It's still going. It's still scanning patients day in, day out. And we used that scanner to to show a few years ago that actually you can do the same thing. You obviously have to make a few compromises, and it's not quite as 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 clear and reliable as it is with the sort of state of the art research scanner. But you can you can do it on a sort of cheap and cheerful hospital scanner. And I tell you, if you can do it. On the scanner we have here in in London, Ontario, then you can do it on pretty much any any hospital scanner you know around the world. But it requires people to dedicate themselves to it. You know, it, it it's not something. Actually, I, I guess it is like a. I was going to say it's not like a blood test, but in many ways it is like a blood test. I mean, probably most of us could be trained to to take blood, but you know, it requires some expertise and some machinery behind the scenes to analyze a blood sample to decide. You know what's you know what the answer to whatever the question the the person that wrote the prescription had. It's the same thing with with the, the MRI that we use. It's it's not it, the answer just doesn't pop out of the the machine. Um, it requires somebody to interpret it and think about it a little, and uh, and that requires some expertise. And I, but I've been, you know, I, but I think it just requires that the the will is there, and those those regulatory bodies that uh, make these decisions sort of deem that this is this is a worthy. Well, the enterprise. I, I certainly think it, it is, and I've been campaigning for it now for, for many years. For someone like me, outside of, I suppose, medicine and those systems and how they work, so is it a case of you have prepared, you know, these different techniques for uh, investigating the consciousness of of patients in these states that can work at, a you know, an ICU level that can, when a patient comes in, you can do an assessment. So whether that you know, and it can adapt to whatever equipment I suppose is is at hand for these these um, doctors. So, is it then a case of you have to then talk to these medical bodies and make your case until they hear you, and then I suppose a bit like a select committee at government way. It, it, it is it is quite a lot like that, but I mean the problem is. It, it, I mean, again, again, this is one of the things that prevents it happening. Probably, is it's not it's not really my job to do that. You know, I'm a neuroscientist. Yeah. I I'm around to sort of discover things, and once I've discovered something, I typically move on to the next thing. I don't generally spend a lot of time you know, persuading the various people that need to be persuaded that they should adopt this thing. I just get on with it, you know, and and do the next thing. And and this is the way that science you know becomes clinical practice i mean there's a there's a we have a beautiful example that everybody can relate to think about you know the way the the covid-19 vaccines were rolled out and everybody has read about you know how amazingly quickly this went from being you know the science in the laboratory to being you know vaccines in in people's arms and you know the, the story that everybody's getting is that this was extraordinary and it was extraordinary it wasn't too fast it was just that the motivation was there to to make it happen quickly and, and all the barriers that typically sort of stand in the way were pushed aside because everybody was invested in this. That's not typically how things work. You know, typically we make scientific discoveries and then 
you know, maybe maybe twenty years before they actually make it into 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 clinical practice because they often have to go through sort of prolonged trials and with things like MRI or techniques like MRI, what, what typically happens is people just naturally start to use them more. I mean, this is this is certainly the case in where our methods are you know are concerned as I, as I said there'd be more than a, a thousand patients scanned using these techniques around the world now and I, I, you know probably a, only a I don't know a couple of dozen of them were scanned in my lab uh, these are other people around the world have sort of adopted it and some of them are scientists some of them are interested uh, doctors that you know have a patient that's quite interesting I certainly get calls like that all the time from somebody somewhere in the world that says yeah I've got this very interesting patient and I'm pretty sure there's something going on can you tell me how to do this this tennis imagery thing and I'll just instruct them to do it and and you know they'll they'll, they'll carry it out so yeah I think it, it just sort of by some kind of process of people gradually adopting it eventually the the, the, the regulatory bodies will say okay this is a thing we should be mandating this for every patient but it's a slow process uh, it's, it's not like the covid19 vaccines that was adrian owen there explaining how his work communicating with patients in comas and vegetative states could find its way into more hospitals if you'd like to hear adrian and i dig a little deeper into the science of consciousness and the future of brain reading machines check out instant genius extra a bonus podcast available via subscription on apple's podcast app and of course if you want to learn more about adrian's work check out his book into the gray zone which is published by faber and faber in the uk thank you for listening the instant genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind bbc science focus magazine which you can find on sale in supermarkets and news agents, as well as your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time.